You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Good morning. In the first service, I lost uh, track of what I was supposed to do when uh, Des went up and spoke of her mission trip, and then the India video came on, and I completely forgot uh, where I was. Uh, but this time, I was prepared. So, but you know, it's. It's a joy for us who've been uh, to India, to, to Bolivia, to Garden Hill, uh, to LBE, to see God's work happening in this world. And I, I can tell you that those of us who went to India, we would go back at the drop of a hat. But that may not be God's plan. And so the great joy and the great hope that the Christians have is this, that our brothers and sisters in West Bengal will stand one day together with us in the presence of the Lord. And when I take my last breath on this planet Earth and I stand before God, I will have... Gyan Mochari and Biplab Sarkar and Anita and Rita standing next to me and worshiping the same God. And it is for that reason that we do these missions. So it, is a, it, was, it, it was tough. I, Pastor Terry is a man of noble intentions. So he did warn me ahead of time that there was going to be a video for India and I was prepared for that but obviously not enough. Um, you know, we've been, we've been in the book of Ephesians, and it's, it's a book that's all about the church. It's about the church, how church is supposed to be, and what church is supposed to be. It is a book that talks about how God brings the church together, and how the church interjects with the world. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. But you know the beauty of a letter like this is that it's not specifically for the church in Ephesus. A letter like this transcends time. And in fact, some of the, some of the early manuscripts that have been found uh, for the letter of Ephesians or the letter to Ephesians there's actually a blank space where it says, in Ephesus. And many of the scholars believe that it was one letter that Paul wrote that went to churches in Asia Minor. And as the letter was being sent, whichever church it was going to, their name was inserted in that little blank space. And so it won't be, it won't be a far stretch for me to read the beginning of the epistle like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Winnipeg, the faithful in Christ Jesus, or even taking it one step closer, Paul, an, epistle, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in White Ridge Baptist Church the faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, this epistle is written to the believers. 
there are believers in this congregation. This church here today has the same significance that the church in Ephesus had 2,000 years ago. The letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus has the same relevance and same significance that this church has right now. And so we can read it as though the letter is written to us. And I say that because I believe the passage we're going to look at this morning is addressed to us as a congregation. So why don't you stand with me and we'll read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. You know, for the longest time, I've been, I've been hoping and, and wishing that I'll be able to preach on just one verse, one verse in the scripture. And uh, so when Pastor Terry said, you know, can you re- preach on chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I thought, oh, well, here goes that opportunity, seven verses. But the interesting thing is that in the Greek New Testament, the seven verses are all one sentence. And so I had to chuckle when I found that out, and I thought God must have a sense of humor because he did give me one sentence to speak on. Let's read. As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray in the words of the Apostle Paul, and we ask that you may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. We pray also that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Please have a seat. You know, there are many passages in the Bible that are open to interpretation. And they're open to interpretation because they're either tied into the context or the history or the geography of what's being recorded. That's not the case with this passage. This is an absolute passage. It is filled with absolute statements. There is no getting around what Paul is trying to get across. So when we start and look at the first three verses, Paul paints a very stark reality of the human condition. He starts by pointing us to what humanity is today without Christ Jesus. He points out what, Christ, what humanity is in any age without Christ Jesus. And so he starts with a very blank and bold statement. He says, and you were dead. You know, in the book of Exodus that we just finished, finished studying a while ago, the story is, 
is written, the history is written of the Israelites who were under bondage, under slavery in Egypt. And they had been there for, for centuries. And it is God who intervenes and brings about their rescue. But then, instead of just leaving them to flounder for the rest of eternity, God, in fact, leads them into Canaan. What we read in Ephesians and what we witness in the, in the lives of Christians is the same thing that happens to us in our spiritual world. It is us who are in bondage and who are slaved, enslaved to our surroundings, to our world. And it is only God who brings about the freedom and then takes us into our spiritual Canaan. And just as the Israelites, as they entered the land of Canaan, they received blessings and glorious riches, we receive the same in our spiritual world. And just like the Israelites, we have nothing to do with what happens. We have nothing of merit that God looks at and says, you shall be rescued. It is all God and it is only his work that redeems us and breaks the bondage and moves us into freedom. The passage is filled with pronouns that talk about us and we and humans and so on. But make no mistake, this passage is not about you and it's not about us. It is about God and his work in our lives and it is about God and what we receive because of his work in our lives. John Stott says this about the first 10 verses. He says this, Against the somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 stands out in striking relevance. Paul first plumbs the depth of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. End quote. Do not forget that this passage is about God and his work. So Paul's writing these verses to a church, to believers, and he's reminding them of where they have come from, what they were when they were in spiritual death. They were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. And his absolute statement leaves no doubt in our minds of what this is about. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. There is no sugarcoating that statement. What is, what is death? What is death? Death is not anything in and of itself. Death comes in the absence of life. When a person or a body is brought into the hospital, the medical staff and the doctors are not looking for signs of death in that body. They're looking for signs of life. They're looking for a heartbeat. They're looking for blood pressure. They're looking for some mental activity. And when none of those signs are found, the person is pronounced dead. It is true in the same way of our spiritual lives. Mankind severed its connection with God, the giver of life, the creator of life, 
mankind severed its relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the life. And so in the absence of life came spiritual death. Every man, every woman, every child who has ever lived on planet Earth has been born into that state of spiritual death. This is an absolute statement. No one is exempt. It is an absolute statement. And it's a somber reality. We are surrounded by living dead. We are surrounded by people who are unable to respond to any spiritual stimulus, who have no reaction or response to anything divine around them. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we try to preach the gospel to someone and they turn their noses up at us or they turn their back to us because they have not been spiritually made alive. There isn't any work of the Holy Spirit present in their lives. And when we do plant a seed in someone's life, it is truly a work of God that that seed takes root and brings fruit. Nothing to do with us. Everything to do with God. Spiritually dead people are simply alienated from God and unable to respond to anything that has a signature of God on it. John MacArthur says this about this, the condition of man. Man is spiritually dead. His body lives, but man is dead. He is destitute of the life that recognizes God. He can't know God. He can't understand God. He is insensitive to God. He can't comprehend God. He can't even have a relationship with God. He can't do God's will. He can't fulfill God's word. And so he can't enjoy God's blessing. The unbelieving man is not merely sick. He is dead. The only difference between sinners is the state of their decay. They're all dead. The world, then, is the graveyard of the living dead. They move around as if they're alive, but they're not. Scripture says they're dead while they live. That is what John MacArthur says about the condition of man in line with exactly what the Bible preaches. Paul goes on to say that we are dead in transgressions and sins, and his choice of those two words is very deliberate. Sins refer to us missing the mark that God has set before us. It refers to the fact that God has placed a target and we have missed it. What is that target? You know, God said in the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. Jesus said in the New Testament, he said, be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. And so this God target that he sets before us of perfection is completely unattainable in ourselves. And so we miss. We live in a state of sin because we miss that target. And then the transgressions. The transgressions are, are willful acts of disobedience. It is when we know something that we ought to do that is consistent with the character of God and we turn our back and we willfully defy God. And so Paul uses those two words to make sure that there isn't a legal loophole that we can use to get out of this teaching. He wants to make sure that we understand that we live in sins and we commit transgressions. We are dead in both of those. So what is a life of death that lives in sins and transgressions look like, looks like? Well, Paul's pretty clear. He says, we followed the ways of this world. We followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And we gratified 
the sinful nature. If you look at those three pieces, it is the same trifecta of evil, if you'd like to call it that, that is still waging war against the believers. It is the same unholy trio that, that is still on a relentless assault against the believer. And so those who are not believers are living under dominion of this unholy trio. And those who have been freed are in a battle against the same unholy trio. The world is translated as, as cosmos, and it's been used 186 times in the New Testament. And in pretty much every single instance, it speaks with an evil connotation. It speaks of a world system that is actively disobedient to God and is actively hostile to God. It is a social and the value system that is in the present evil age. We are in the middle. We are in the middle of this social system. We used to follow its ways until we were redeemed by Jesus Christ. You just have to look at the system around you. And if you compare it to the scriptures, you'll notice how far apart the two are. If you look at the financial system, the Bible tells us that the first 10% of everything you own belongs to God. You talk to a financial planner, with all due respect to the financial planners, the world system tells you, as soon as you get paid, you take some money and put it aside for your savings. And so you see the difference between the two. One places God at the center of the system, and the other places you at the center of the system. They're completely, completely opposite ends of the same spectrum. The second unholy trio component is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It is the spirit who is at work now in those who are disobedient. And that's a very interesting use of verb that, uh, that Paul has. In everything else, he talks about following. But in this case, he identifies the fact that the devil and his demons are very active at this moment. That is a teaching that the church cannot take lightly. The activity of Satan is real in this world. And if you're not under the protection of Jesus Christ, then everything is under the dominion of the prince of the air. He's also behind this world system. So make no mistake that the world system and the devil are working against you. And, all, and so are all the people that are following Prince of the Air as they walk in disobedience to God. Incidentally, all of the religions in the world are probably one of the most effective tools that Satan has. If we, this morning, believe that the only absolute truth is in this book, then every other ideology, every other teaching every other belief system and every other religion has only one author and that's Satan. This is where the truth is and so Satan uses all of his tools to keep people under his dominion and to fight against those who are now under the protection of Jesus Christ. The last piece of this un unholy trio is the flesh. 
And it does, just doesn't refer to our physical body, but it talks about our physical and mental and social and psychological and emotional makeup. It talks about the whole human being. Every part of our body, our physical life, our emotional life, our psychological life is cut off completely from our relationship with God. And it is because of that, when that flesh lives in a world that is dominated by Satan, a world system that is dominated by him, we fulfill what, whatever our bodies need and whatever our bodies desire. Our personal fulfillment becomes the driver for our life. And in some cases, even the good things we do, we do because it makes us feel good. So we live spiritually dead lives under the dominion of the world and the devil and the flesh. All of these in direct rebellion to God and God's character. And so at the end of this segment, a judgment is pronounced. And Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. You know, the NIV translates that as objects of wrath. I like children of wrath because as we've read in the previous chapters and we've been taught, we are children of God. And so we move from being children of wrath to children of God. And there's a very clear change in who we are when we look at it that way. The doctrine of sin has sobering words for us. Why does, why does Paul spend so much time talking about sin and what we were? Why can't just talk about the good stuff? You know, Jesus died and you can have a life in heaven. Why can't we just talk about that? Why does he have to take us to the depths of depravity that we were in and then raise up to the heights of optimism? I think, the, I think our understanding of the doctrine of sin is directly proportional to our appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do not know what you have been rescued from, you will place very little value on the rescuer. And so it is very critical for Christians to know what they have been rescued from and who their rescuer is. I've had many opportunities to watch pastors of mega churches who've been on national platforms on television and when asked what they thought of sin, they have looked at the camera and point blank said, we don't talk about that at my church because it makes people uncomfortable. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is cheapened because it becomes a fire insurance more than anything else. It becomes a means for you to say, I was part of the biggest church in North America or I grew up in a church so and so. The gospel of Jesus Christ is truly appreciated when we know what we have been rescued from. When we understand the doctrine of sin, we also understand how the world works around us. So when a, in, a, in, a, in a country, its armies march across the borders and enter a different country, we know that it is no different than a person breaking into the house of another person. The scale may be different in our eyes and in our ears, but it is the same sinful nature 
that drives both actions. And so we understand and start making sense of the world around us. The doctrine of sin is hard teaching because it confronts us and exposes our complete depravity and our helpless state. But the doctrine of sin is essential teaching because it reveals our need for a savior. In verses four to six, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Some of the other translations start verse 4 like this. They read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. I like how that starts. I like the combination of but God. You see, those, those two words form the crux of the Christian faith. Because any religion can come to you and tell you that you don't measure up to their divine entity and the standard they have said but they will prescribe to you how you can attain the affirmation of that entity. But in the Christian faith, after we come to realize the shortcoming that we have, we come to these two words, but God. Those are probably the two most important words in the life of a believer. Everyone, of, everyone here who's a believer this morning has a redemptive story. You have a redemptive story that has God at the center of it. And I can suspect that if I asked one person, they will give me all the details of that redemptive story, and their details will look nothing like my details. And if we took 10 or 50 people and looked at all of their redemptive stories, the details may look different for each one of us. But I can guarantee you that if we peeled away all the layers and got to the core of their witness and their testimony, this is what they would say. I was spiritually dead, but God, but God, because of his great love for me and in the richness of his mercy, made me alive with Christ, raised me up with Christ, and seated me in the heavenly realms with Christ. That is the crux of every man, woman, or child who has ever come to know Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether that witness is in West Bengal or Bangladesh or in LBE in downtown Winnipeg or in Garden Hill. When you peel away the layers, that is the witness of every single believer. And so these two, these two words act as a transition point for us. We've been taken down into hopelessness and despair, but now we've been brought out into hope and comfort because of what God does. And he does it when we were still dead in our transgressions. Verse 4 speaks more than anything else of God's character. It speaks of the fact that God is a God of mercy. He is rich in mercy. And if you look at the translation, the word rich actually means boundless inexhaustible. 
His mercy has no end. There isn't a day when God is going to look at all my faults and say, you've, you've used up all the mercy I had for you. There isn't a day when God will say that because his mercy is inexhaustible. Mercy withholds God's judgment and his grace releases his forgiveness. Mercy doesn't give us what we deserve and his grace gives us what we don't deserve. So in spite of our transgressions, in spite of our sins, in spite of us following the ways of the world, in spite of us following the devil, in spite of us living in disobedience, in spite of us fulfilling the desires of our sinful nature and our flesh, in spite of all of that, God shows up and shows us sinners mercy and grace. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? Have you ever sat back and looked at your life before you were a Christian and wondered why? Why did God choose me? Why did he show his mercy to me? And the answer is that it is because of his great love. It is because of his great love and his inexhaustible mercy that he takes children of wrath and adopts us into his family so that we can be called children of God. And to fulfill the requirements of his holiness and justice, God the Father sends God the Son to this earth, and he puts upon him all our iniquities, all our pride, all our sin, all, all the conjurings that we can come up with in terms of corruption. He places them all on Jesus Christ and places Jesus Christ on a cross. Jesus Christ was rejected so that you might be reconciled. He was stripped so that you might be robed in his righteousness. He was descended into hell so that we might be lifted up out of it. And his body was broken so that we may be healed. And while he was standing on the cross and taking his last breath and crying out to his father, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was so that you, so that you, could be adopted into the family of Christ and be given the right to call God Abba, Father. Jesus Christ died for you so you can have life. He was raised up so you can be raised up. And he was seated in the heavenly realm so you can be seated in the heavenly realms with him. It is because of God's great love and mercy and grace that you have a new identity and a new address. This morning as I speak to you standing here, my body is present here. But 19 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, at that very moment by the, by the shores of Lake Superior, at that very moment, spiritually I was made alive, I was raised up, and I was seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. And it's true for every one of you who have come to call him your Lord. You have a new identity. Satan has no longer any dominion over you. If the world tries to pull you in because that's what it wants to do, then you stand firm. And you stand firm because Jesus Christ has said that you may be in this world, but you're not off this world. If the devil who is a roaring lion 
prowling around looking for someone to devour is coming after you. You stand firm because the lion of the tribe of Judah is on your side. And if your flesh is fighting against you and you are battling the flesh, stand firm because the word of God renews your mind and your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought at a price, the Bible tells us. That is our spiritual reality if we are believers this morning. That is where we stand before God in His presence in our spiritual life. If you are a believer this morning, there is much to rejoice because you recognize what you were and where you were headed and where you have come and why and because of who. It is because of God's great love that you have been redeemed. It would be, it would be naive for me to believe that every person present in this room is a believer. And though that may be our wish and our prayer, it may not be true. So let me ask you this. Are you a believer this morning? Are you a Christian? And if your answer is no, then the Bible is very clear. You are dead. You are spiritually dead. The God of life has given you options and choices and brought you to a fork in the road many times in your life. But you have chosen to reject him. The God of the universe has brought you to that fork in the road one more time. There's a cross at that fork in the road. You can choose the cross and live. Or you can reject the cross and continue to be dead. There's a moment staring at you, asking you to make a decision. There are many people around you who have already chosen life. You have a decision. Choose death or choose life. And I pray that you will choose life.